Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Challoner, and you join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. I'm delighted first and foremost to be joined on today's show by Claire Chamberlain. Claire is a director at Can Advertising Limited, an agency which offers advertising and communication services primarily to the healthcare sector. Uh, Claire, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for joining us on the programme. Thank you. It's a real pleasure having you with us, Claire. Um, the whole reason we're here, of course, is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. And considering mm-hmm. that today's generation of business leaders is going through one of the greatest challenges of our time, I think it's fair to say, in the shape of COVID-19, I feel it would be mm-hmm. remiss of me not to ask you just to what extent the pandemic has affected you and your business operations. Well, it's affected us particularly in the geographical location. Obviously, we were all based in a small office in Windsor. We used to hear the band going past every day. But now we have um, moved so that everybody is working from home, which has worked surprisingly well, um, particularly as we've taken two new joiners on board. So that was quite an, an education, having to move to doing virtual interviews and onboarding through a virtual process. But that's worked quite well. We also won a pitch um, in the early days of the lockdown, which worked well, actually worked in our favour because our clients were working with other big agencies and asking them to pitch as well. But being a virtual pitch, they couldn't be overwhelmed by big offices with lots of bodies, lots of people around. So that worked quite well for us. But it it has been a challenge. And uh, we were very lucky to just get faster broadband put into the offices. We've been waiting for two years and it happened the week before lockdown. So that was that was a huge relief for us. It would have been much more difficult without that in place. That sounds incredibly um, fortunate indeed, uh, for sure. And <laughs> over the course of uh, this um, year, as we've begun the uh, the 2020s, um, we've seen a real change all of a sudden um, in our working practices, what we're considering to be the workplace of the uh, the future mm-hmm. um, going forward, whether there will be a place for the office as we knew it over the last 10 years, or whether we are going to be working from home on a more sort of personal basis. Um, but what do you think is really going to change about the uh, the workplace over the course of the uh, the next um, sort of 10 years and how do you think that's going to measure up to how it's developed in the previous decade? I think very much people will no longer expect or need to have an office for every single worker that you have within your organisation. We'll much more be working in pods and allowing people the flexibility to work from home. We've always been an organisation that has allowed people to work from home, but it's really shown us that everybody can work from home, even the jobs that we thought were sort of office-based, like our office manager. It's still possible to do those from home these days. And the way that our clients are working has changed. So initially when this uh, kicked off, we had a quite a slow first few months as our clients tried to work out how they were going to communicate with, with their um, target audience. And we've had to adapt very quickly to moving into a much more virtual world and delivering items and meetings that much more naturally would fall as as big international meetings as bringing 100 people together in Sicily, for example. We're now going to be delivering a virtual meeting um, over over three days, three hours at a time. So things are really changing. And very much we're having to trust our staff entirely. So it's very important that you do that. And you have measures in place so you can monitor how people are working, but without over-monitoring them. Because we've actually found people are... Um, incredibly good at getting on with the work day. We all miss meeting up and seeing each other face to face and 
I've mentioned we had two new interns and we haven't actually met them face to face yet and we really want to, to do that and make them part of the CAN family. So I can see that very much changing for the future. Whilst we won't have everyone in every day all the time, we will actually move to a situation where people are much more flexible. And it's also forced us to get used to the likes of Teams and Zoom and make it work. And it works with our clients as well. So I can see much more of that happening in the future and the office being much more of a touch point where you get together, where you really want to debate ideas and um, enjoy that sort of bouncing around of ideas. But really, we can do a lot of that virtually. Still face-to-face, it's, it's nice to be able to do. And from a sort of leadership point of view, do you find that a time of difficulty and crisis such as this does actually bring the best out in people? I think it does. I mean, we've made a, uh, my my business partner and I have made a real effort to speak to the team members throughout this process and make sure we have video on occasionally so we can see how they're actually doing it's really important to, to hear what, and understand what's going on for them. You know, what are their challenges from working at home? We have, obviously, like most people, we've got people who've got young children at home, so working around that and having to do the homeschooling, so understanding ways that can work better for them, making sure everyone's got the equipment that they need, and, and obviously that they're motivated and happy. So um, our office manager, for example, we've tasked her with, um, setting up a, a meeting every week on Zoom, a little competition. So we've done prizes and we've also sent out gifts to everybody and really ensure that everybody knows every month how the company's doing, what our challenges are, what the new business is looking like, just making more effort to communicate um, than ever before and, and to motivate people as much as possible and, and understand their issues and trying to solve them really quickly. And keeping the communication channels open, um, especially during such a period of social isolation, is incredibly important from a mental health perspective, isn't it, as well? It um, is. Mm-hmm. Just how important do you view mental health as being in a leadership context, not just in terms of looking after your own, but also that of those around you as well? Yeah, it's, it's incredibly important. You, you want a team that's happy and can, can work and isn't being affected by mental health. So we really do want to make sure we've got such a range of staff and those that are perhaps living in a, in a busy family, as I say, dealing with children in lockdown, to people who are, are living on their own um, have, and have had very little interaction, who are used to being able to interact. So we've been aware of how those people are doing, of making sure we touch base with them. And also they were sort of the first people that we've met back with in the office since things have started to open up, just, just to really see them face to face and really have a chat and really understand how they're feeling and how their mental health is is at the moment. And thinking about just how it's been adapting to this new reality over the uh, the last few uh, months, would you say that this experience of crisis management, if we call it that, has taught you anything in your capacity as a business leader? It certainly taught me that you really can trust people to get on and work. In fact, some people that maybe weren't working to their optimum capacity have actually come out and done more since they've, they've been working from home, which has been great. And other people have just, re- everybody's really got on with it and really um, contributed. And you, you feel that everybody wants wants everything to work. They've, they've adapted to the new norms very quickly and very well. But we've made sure that we've supported people through that. So yes, we have had to learn how to speak to people, how to deal with people remotely and making sure we we keep that communication going and making sure they feel part of the team is much harder in this environment. So we've set up daily calls every single morning. We all get together on a call 
just to plan the day. Everybody knows what everyone else is doing. And that's just so important to, to make sure everyone understands what the key priorities are for the company each day and obviously for longer term. And of course, you've been with Can for quite some time now, uh, Claire. I think it's 10 years. Do correct me um, if yes. I'm wrong. Yes, that's um, right. We set up Can in 2010. And prior to that, of course, you had a proven track record of working uh, with healthcare firms on marketing, um, having, of course, roles um, at the likes of Adventist Health, um, Roche, Syntex Pharmaceuticals, to name but three there. But <laughs> if you could essentially channel all of that experience and maybe give some advice to somebody who was maybe about to start their first day in a leadership role or set up their own business, what what sort of advice would you give them to help them succeed on the way? The biggest thing is taking on the right people and accepting you'll only get that right probably 50% of the time. But when you've got the right people, do everything you can to keep them, to keep them motivated and be prepared to learn from them. We very much set up CAN. And I think it might be something to do with having two, two women at the helm. We're very, very keen to make sure we involve people and create much more of a family feel. We don't have a strong hierarchy and it's all about listening to everybody and letting everybody have their say. But ultimately, you know, you have to be the ones making the decision. And reflecting um, on the future now, just before we do uh, draw to a close on the uh, the programme today, over the uh, the next 12 to 18 months, we know that we're going to have to adjust to a new normal way of living and working as we hopefully look to shrug off the uh, the shackles of the uh, the pandemic forever. But in that mm-hmm. time, what is next for you, Claire, and for Canon? What are you really hoping to achieve as a business? Very much to take the learnings that, that we've had through these last few months and applying them going forward and really helping our clients to adapt to the new normal and with with different clients we work on different projects so it's really good to bring those experiences and say hey client x this is what client y has been doing it'd be really good for you to do that and just showing our experience and being able to give that to people and really making virtual communication and virtual marketing the best that it can be within the pharma industry and making sure that 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 doesn't get lost and we don't start slipping back into the old ways too much and do, do as much as we can as effectively as we can. And let's certainly hope there'll be some positive news to share on that front in the uh, the coming months, Claire. And given just how insightful it's been having you joining us on the programme today, I'd really welcome the opportunity to have you back on the programme with us in future just to see how things are getting on a few months down the line. And at that point, we can better assess just exactly how far we've come society-wise by then as well in hopefully getting through this pandemic. That would be very nice. Thank you. It would be wonderful, uh, Claire, but not just, of course, uh, for myself. um, And it's been a real pleasure having you joining us today. But also, I think from a listener's perspective as well, I think that would be thoroughly engaging. Um, Until then, Claire, in the meantime, uh, most importantly, please do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on, because I think it's fair to say we know we're certainly not out of the woods with this yet. Definitely not. Roll on the vaccine. That was Claire Chamberlain speaking from Can. Coming up next on the programme today, I'm going to be handing over to Sir Jeff Hurst, the 1966 FIFA World Cup hero for England, who remains the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in a World Cup final. That follows his treble in England's 4-2 victory over West Germany at the Old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope it might, might last. 
Absolutely. Oh, thunderstorm, it's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, again, that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with, with this record and goodness me, that's how it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player. Uh, tremendous goal scorer, and if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, uh, it would be someone like Harry, who was a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England. So absolutely, and I want England to do well. I mean, I I'm want England to be successful. I, I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter, and I just I really want the country to do well in in anything in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I want up wanting to bury it, and I'll be absolutely. I would be as delighted as anybody in the, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my, uh, my achievement. It's about the team being successful. Whether I got two or three in one sense is, is uh, I wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand we all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking, if the game's nearly finished, I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, Hans Pilkowski the German keeper by that time surely the game has got to be over but as I always jokingly say uh, I miss hit it and it and it flew in but I was thinking about wasting time not so much about uh, but certainly what I was going to do which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours and it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes. It, absolutely. Yes, I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished, but that, that, that philosophy is right. You're just going to 
uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, of, of making it, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life. An element of maybe doing something you're not too sure about, but sometimes in life you've, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague, Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service and we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts and we're hanging out thank you banners displaying drawings of rainbows very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh absolutely particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing and I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for w- what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run up with enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and uh, important it is to have a, a health service that works efficiently and to see individually the, the amount of people who were interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on. And, and also, it was also, for me, fantastic, all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same u- u- union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, covid uh, very heartwarming, and I think that kind of feeling. I, I probably, as a player in '66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about '66, and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing, and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS, fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, ro- the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coming to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my my best during those those, those years. 
um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, and clever enough, and technically good enough to, to be a rap, to be a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp, who's been around a long time, would still say he's, he's the best coach he has worked with. And that's, just, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the, and teach and coach the players to be prepared to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alfred Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined uh, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined move from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was, I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a, you've got a, a coach, who's a team coach, who's a teacher effectively, and you've got the other kind of character who's a manager, who manages people, may not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who's then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club, you're managing people, uh, different characters and all over the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over, different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was, was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can say I can't be as, I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic uh, uh, people in my life, in my, in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think leadership is important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn, if you're central enough, to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think, well, like, that was a really stupid thing to do, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes, but it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. 
completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier, even if you were toing and froing between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. When in in those uh, medieval days, you there were, you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You um, in our road in Greenway, as it was called in Chelmsford, we that three or four lads <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road um, with a round with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B because there weren't as many cars. No, there as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across, across the across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and so as you three of us play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in. Uh, flying, you know, and making balsa wood gliders, and uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, uh, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court, and uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street, and uh, we were actually. But that, that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We, we, I was born in Ashton under line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably, I was the eldest of three, when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was had a big influence going back to that third gold in the World Cup in many years in the back garden and when we moved on to a, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot and so I at that time and even today it's, it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed and I was maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton even Jack Charlton his brother didn't know which was his best foot he, he was fantastic but I was pretty pretty um, um Two-footed, and a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to 
two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leading age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leading age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or, uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. The problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well. And I was messing about as I... I kind of put it between the two sports which was hugely detrimental to me in my early development either as a cricketer or either as a footballer and it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me I was a midfield player then or centre half at school um, he uh, said I'm going to try you up front he put me up front in the game and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically and I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about between the two. I had the one first-class game for Essex, at, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got Norton and Norton not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game from there. I thought a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game um, v Lancashire up up in their territory. But that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say, make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till, what, September? Whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games. For those two or three years, extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other. Uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it. And from a standing start, I think my first season around, I think September, October, I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool. And I think I played about 23, 24 games, no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals, like one in two from a standing start for a, mm. a big field player. So um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 60, 62, 63 season, three years before the World Cup. And when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing a lot of videos of Banksy, the programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to 
smother balls and not just tipping balls at it. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you could possibly wish to meet. But he was a joker. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd he have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky. Very lucky, of course, to have that kind of and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banks is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player, in, but in the squad, and Ray Wilson, our left-back, I'd always argue, was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup from world-class players. And Banks, was up there, w- w- not with the best, the best for me. And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course over the years, hopefully that, that has uh, come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was, I was initially personally surprised, I think it's, <laughs> And certainly, my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was, uh, which is, I can see in myself, I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Greaves and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Waddington saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across the, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player, but I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mould mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times, uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months. And I think it was a, a big help to getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. 
did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a still spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America. Uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at Seattle. So it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham that we were, it was a great time with the club. And I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years. And it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the, uh, the, the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi final. So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played Ajax in, in, the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on the goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was... I wasn't at my best and I thought it was time to retire which I did and Johnny Giles was in charge and I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year but I made very little contribution to that success the club had so um, yes it, uh, the, the American experience was just fantastic I never saw it as long term being over there that was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters and my wife and she was uh, pregnant with her daughter over there so that was, that was a good time it's completely different Ireland was just a just a I always joke about Ireland I was there for about I think a month I think it was and I enjoyed the experience and I earned a few quid and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England <laughs> new kitchen <laughs> So it certainly went really well I suppose in the waning days of um, your career um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's, I think the, that kind of, uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe, uh, maybe longer, maybe in longer, not some sort of immediately after you finish playing, but in the long term when, um, uh, and I always joke with people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend and, and I always joke and say you only start being called a legend when you're over 70 and I think the, the whatever the word is I'm not sure adulation or recognition or whatever it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years not, not certainly um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has, has natural characteristics. You can learn about management on mental courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. 
But one of the things I learned from our brand is I've taken into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if they're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you're managing the group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's a simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alf Ramsey period. Even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at, at the time without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, even, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of, of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. And ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff, thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.